0: This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Enthusiasm. I like it. This is episode 76, the 23rd part of the 100-Miler History. This is a bonus episode about the ultra-events that were held at Fort Meade in Maryland. I will tell the story of the historic two-man 24-hour relay held in 1983, run by Neil Wagant and Dan Brannan. And now a word from our sponsors. Please help this podcast continue by subscribing or renewing to Ultra Running Magazine with a 25% discount. For each, some proceeds support this podcast and cover my many expenses. Go to ultrarunninghistory.com mag. That's M-A-G, ultrarunninghistory.com slash mag. We now return to your regular programming. Now to the story. In the 1970s, a 24-hour relay craze took place at high schools and colleges and running clubs. By 1972, Runners World magazine was publishing results along with some standardized rules for these relays participated by hundreds of runners. The Washington and Baltimore Roadrunners clubs were early adopters of the relay format when they established a 24-hour 10-man team relay race in 1970 on the track at Fort Meade in Maryland, where participants would run one-mile legs. By the early 1980s, a few ultra runners had tried to see how far they could go in 24 hours with just a two-man team. The known world record was 193 miles. During that time, the Philadelphia area was the home of many great road runners, with much credit going to Browning-Ross who organized numerous competitive races in the region for years. In 1983, two elite ultra runners in America became inspired to give a try at breaking the world's two-man, 24-hour record on that track at Fort Meade. These runners were Neil Wagant and Dan Brannon. Neil Waygant was from Haverton, Pennsylvania, and worked at a sports store. During his running career, he was best known for his 45 consecutive finishes of the Boston Marathon, including 24 consecutive finishes in less than three hours. But in ultra circles, during the 1980s and 90s, he was known for his achievements in fixed time races, especially six-day races. Waygant ran cross-country at Haverford High School and became their top runner and team captain. In 1962, at the age of 15, he met future ultra-running great Tom Osler, who was 22 at the time. Waygant started to go on long training runs with Osler, beginning a lifelong friendship and mentorship. In 1966, Waygant went to college and ran on the cross-country team at Pennsylvania Military Colleges, where he became a champion. He also ran on the South Jersey Track Club with Osler. Weigand ran his first marathon in 1966 with a time of 2 hours 50 minutes and said, It wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Osler convinced Weigand to run the Boston Marathon in 1967, starting his long association with a storied event. From 1968 to 1971, Weygant was a member of various track clubs that would run races against other clubs. He and Osler competed together and frequently won in road races up to 17 miles long. In 1977, he began to run ultras with the Metropolitan 50 miler in Central Park finishing in 6 hours 39 minutes. By 1980, Wegant stepped up to the 100 kilometer distance and excelled running the great Philadelphia to Atlantic City Road Race. Two years later, he set a world indoor best running 133 miles in 24 hours at the Haverford College Fieldhouse. That year he also ran his lifetime best for 100 miles at Shea Stadium in New York with a time of 14 hours 35 minutes. In 1983, he was living in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, and a member of the Haverford Athletic Association, along with Dan Brannan. Dan Brannan was from Upper Darby, a suburb of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm talking all about the city of brotherly love. Dan Brannan would make a lifetime impact on the sport of ultra running. The Brannan family were Irish Catholics and he went to Catholic schools growing up, including St. Joseph's Prep in Philadelphia, the same school that ultra running legend Ed Dodd attended several years earlier. In high school, Brannan was required to participate in an athletic extracurricular activity. He explained.
1: And I was a shrimpy little kid and played little league baseball, but I wasn't particularly athletic. I wasn't particularly coordinated. So one of the sophomores who came in to give us a help with the orientation said, ah, if you can't do anything else, go out for cross country. So I went out for cross country my freshman year and I was terrible at it. The cross country course was 1.6 miles and included a hill that you ran twice and neither time could I get up that hill without walking.
0: (laughs) During his senior year, a new coach, Larry Simmons, a successful distance runner and race walker took over the team. He lit a fire into the team and into Brannan, whose courses times dramatically fell, resulting in his promotion finally to the varsity team. His rapid success turned him into a runner for life. Brandon went on to Bucknell University in central Pennsylvania and got in on the ground floor of a new cross-country team. His coach, Art Gulden, developed a highly successful running program at Bucknell. Brandon continued to improve under his tutelage.
1: Each year he was able to recruit faster and faster high school runners. Every year, a new crop of freshmen would come in. They were state champions, and it was very competitive on the team. I was able to stay with the second tier of those guys. One of the best feelings I ever had about myself was, wow, here's three guys who were high school state champions and we're in the middle of a race, and I'm running with them.
0: Brandon ran a few marathons during college, graduated in 1975, and joined the well-established road running scene in the Philadelphia, and New Jersey area. He was a self-described running bum and lived with his parents for many years as he concentrated on his running passion. His weekly mileage would average about 100 to 120 miles per week and his personal best marathon occurred at the 1979 Boston Marathon when he ran in 2 hours 31 minutes 13 seconds. He was intoxicated with distance running, and it evolved into a true career. Part-time, he would work editing research manuscripts, which enhanced his writing skills. He also coached cross-country at his former high school.
1: Good job, Matt! Good job! Open up that last mile! Good job! Good job.
0: Brandon was a member of the Haverford Athletic Club, and he became acquainted with future ultra-running legends in the area by also racing in South New Jersey.
1: One of the prime organizers of races, both in South Jersey and the Philadelphia area, was a guy by the name of Browning Ross, who was a great Villanova runner, Olympian. He also was instrumental in the founding of the Roadrunners Club of America, He started the Long Distance Log, which was the very first fledgling rudimentary running magazine. He was a real figurehead, great guy. At that time, he was living in South Jersey, coaching a high school team. And I would go over to South Jersey, and Ed Dodd and Tom Osler were in that South Jersey circle.
0: Brandon ventured into the short ultra-running races in 1978 by running the Knickerbocker 60 Kilometer in Central Park and ran in a few others the next year. In 1980, he ran 50 miles for the first time at the JFK 50 in Maryland. To convince himself that he could do well, he ran two sub-three-hour marathons on back-to-back weekends leading up to the race. Wow. Brandon went to JFK thinking that he might have a good chance to win. His specialty was gnarly, rocky technical trails. He knew that he could stay with people who were faster than him on roads, and hope to keep up with the previous year's champion, Bill Lauder of New Jersey.
1: I'm probably the only person ever to win the JFK in all of its history, starting in absolute dead last and going to first. When the gun went off, I was in the porta potty with my full sweats on and just rapidly completing my business and almost tripping over my sweats getting out of the porta potty and pulling my long pants off as I was trying to run at the same time, getting out to the start line and looking up the road and I could barely see the final stragglers.
0: Where did everyone go?
1: I ran through most of the field for those first three road miles uphill. I think when I got on the trail, I just felt like, wow, this is, this is great. I'm at home. I just mowed my way through the field. I got to probably within three or four miles left on the Appalachian Trail and caught Bill Lauder, rammed him for a little bit, uh, chatted, and then pulled ahead of him. And by the time we got off the Appalachian Trail, I was in third place.
0: Brandon continued on, running an ideal race. Two others ahead of him soon dropped out, and he went into the lead at about mile 20. He was later passed by Lauder on the CNO towpath, but caught him on the final long road uphill toward the finish and won by nine minutes. Rannan Wagant developed a strong friendship.
1: We were members of the Haverford Athletic Club together during the heyday of that club in the late 70s, early 80s. And we trained together a lot. Our regular club run was a Wednesday evening run through the hills of Gladwin, which is right next to Villanova. And there were very hilly road courses. And it was like last man standing <laughs> they were they were 15 mile hilly runs and you know I, I remember finishing some of those runs and looking at the guys around me and, and neil was one of them saying geez we should have been wearing a bib
0: the 24-hour relay races fascinated Brandon, he had been aware for many years about the 24-hour relay which during the 1970s was a popular event nationwide He followed the progression of the records of the 10-person relay and was amazed at some of the distances achieved as they kept going further and further. He followed the news of a team in New Zealand that broke the world relay record. And the
1: way the New Zealand team broke it was they made a pact and they said anybody who ran a single mile over five minutes was out. And they started losing guys because somebody would fail to break five minutes and I think they finished with only five or six guys but that was the way that they maintained their speed. And I was just so impressed by that story. And then I came across that there was actually a two man. And I remember that the two man was 193 miles. And one of the members was a guy from, I believe, San Diego, who was an ultra runner. His name was TJ Key. And I contacted him. He confirmed that they had done 193 miles.
0: Brandon floated the idea to WayGantt of running a two-man relay to break the 193-mile record at the 1983 Fort Meade event.
1: And I said to him, you know, I think we could get 200 miles, and if we do, we can get the world record and both get a 100-mile ultra finish. <laughs> I remember that having some appeal to me and had equal appeal to him, so we, we entered.
0: They were well prepared, both in great shape, and brought an excellent crew, Brandon's sister Mary and his best friend Paul Caulfield. They were well stocked, with plenty of clothing changes, beach chairs, towels, ice, beverages, and food. As usual, the August race was held during a heat wave with temperatures into the mid-90s with 90% relative humidity under a cloudless sky
1: for the ultra runners was tough but when you're doing the 24 hour relay it's not that bad because most people were doing the 10 man and you get an hour between and all you got to do is run a fast mile and then you get a rest and so that oppressive heat and humidity is not too bad for the relay runners for the full 10 person but it definitely was oppressive throughout most of the day and even at night there's steam coming up off the track.
0: They knew that they would each have 107-minute recovery breaks to offset the impact of the weather and planned to take full advantage of those breaks. Weygin and Brandon began and passed a small wooden baton back and forth. They got into a groove early on and held their pace well. Surprisingly, the track did not seem to be congested to them, with the numerous relay teams and ultra runners streaming and plodding through their miles
1: there were a lot of teams the entire perimeter of the track on the outside was like a high school track carnival you know when you get all those teams together all camped out in their little campsites and pretty early on word got around to all the teams of who we were and what we were trying to do and people started
0: cheering for us i had people yelling my name constantly that was very helpful that was very encouraging they did run well, averaging about 6:45 mile minute pace until about halfway shortly after midnight. They started to slow. It felt like a drag. The fun experience went away. When Brandon finished his mile, he tried to hand off the baton that had worn blisters into the palm of his left hand, but Wagant threw his arms down and walked away saying, "I can't do this anymore. I have to quit. I feel lousy." Weygant sat cradled in a lounge chair with a look of anguish on his face.
1: We thought it was over, but our handlers said, look, just both of you sit down. We had lounge chairs, and they got us to eat some more than we previously could eat, because we could only take little snacks, because our rest period was only seven minutes. We were averaging seven-minute miles, and so each of us had only a seven-minute rest before them. We were actually off the track for just under 15 minutes. Then Neil just came back to life. He got his skirt back, he went back out there, and I think for the whole second half, he averaged a, a bit faster than I did. Uh, it took me one or two miles to get back into my groove. Once we recovered from that, we were on a mission. We, we weren't going to let that happen again. We were just going to plug away at it.
0: Ironically, that single block of non-running is what brought them home. Once they got going again, they were full-on, totally on a mission with nothing to distract them. For the second half, the hardest times occurred during their resting sessions.
1: The seven minutes off had little to no value at all. You can't eat, you can't sleep, and you can't really have an effective bodily function. (laughs) If you know what I mean, in seven minutes. It got to the point where sitting in the lounge chair for seven minutes was actually a more miserable experience than being on the track moving and it got to be a relief to get back on the track it was always tough to get going for the first maybe 100 meters but then your body just picked up where it left off with a rhythm and it was smooth and it was peaceful but then stopping and sitting in that lounge chair and trying to drink something and trying to eat little nibbles of things and all you can do in seven minutes effectively is worry
0: (laughs) For the last six hours, Brannon had a strange feeling in his legs, unlike anything that he'd ever felt in his entire running career because of the on again and off again. He told his crew that his legs were singing. They were not in pain, but they were vibrating and seemed to be humming loudly. They pushed through the challenges and succeeded in breaking the known two-man world record with 199 miles, 240 yards. Nick Marshall explained the finish. Whenever one was running, the other was not, until they each had run 99 miles and did the 100th together. In essence, it was a day and night long interval workout of 100 miles each. They averaged seven 16-minute miles between them. Each spent about 12 hours not running. To Brandon, it was one of the most memorable ultrarunning experiences. For a brief period, we
1: really believed that we were world record holders, And that gave us a wonderful feeling. And that feeling has lasted throughout my life, even though we found out within a day after we did it that the same weekend, about 12 hours earlier, for us, two South Africans at run 201.
0: Prior to that historic relay, Brannon and Weigant had been good friends and running buddies. They crewed each other at races but the relay experience had a deep impact on them and bonded them together, which is surprising because they had zero teammate interactions for the entire 24 hours except for the 15 minutes when the race was falling apart and the final couple laps. Otherwise, their interactions were just for fleeting seconds of 100 different handoffs. Wey went on to finish about 30 races of 100 miles or more, which was a significant number during that era. But Boston and his 45-year streak there remained the crown jewel of Wey eyes. He said in later years, I did not consider my streak a burden. I looked forward to returning to Boston each year. No other race had the same traditions. No other had the generation of spectators out cheering for us. Brandon had fond memories of Waygant.
1: Neil's a great guy, a really unassuming, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. Neil's the kind of guy that I can't imagine that anyone could ever find a reason to be upset with or angry at Neil. He's just a a wonderful, down-to-earth, simple, friendly guy.
0: Brandon went on not only to be a talented ultra-runner, but a leading administrator in the sport. He co founded the International Association of Ultrarunners, IAU, and served as its General Secretary for 15 years. He helped establish international ultrarunning programs and worked to get ultra distance accomplishments in the record books. Brandon is one of the very few that successfully made running his career. He did it by establishing a running race timing business and for years timed races every weekend. He also became a course certifier and was the course manager for the 1988 U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon in New Jersey, along with other very prominent races. He became an expert at logistics and operations for road races, triathlons, and cycling races. In 2021, Brandon continues to run, and his passion is competing in adventure racing, including cycling, canoeing, and orienteering. Stay tuned for more 100-mile history. With that, this is Davey Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.